Welcome to Share Public Health, the Midwestern Public Health Training Center's podcast connecting you to public health topics, issues, and colleagues throughout our region and the country, highlighting that we all share in public health. Thank you for tuning into this series, which focuses on rural health in the Midwest. Over 10 episodes, we talk with people in a variety of communities about their experiences and perspectives on rural life, employment, and health. Our aim is to deepen understanding of the complexity of rural life and celebrate rural areas. We're so happy you're listening and learning along with us. In today's episode, we're going to talk about cultural identities and the arts. I'm really excited for you to hear from our guest today. Angie Tagto is the founder and chief strategist of Ecta Consulting. She is a registered dietitian and has a background in food systems, and she served as the head of the Center for Nutrition Policy and Promotion in the United States Department of Agriculture in the Obama administration. Angie is originally from a rural area in Wisconsin, and she currently lives in central Iowa. Angie tells us how she has experienced rural life and the changes she's seen in her community. You know, the biggest strength is that I I see a lot of diversity, not only in the businesses in the uh, surrounding areas, but um, also diversity of of housing, diversity of lifestyles, and especially over the last five to 10 years, I think. But it's also a demonstration of change in economics. And so when you see the suburbs thrive the way that they have around the greater Des Moines area, that's an indication of of, um, uh, economic growth. Having been involved in uh, food systems work over the years and uh, you know, one of the one of the primary reasons why we decided to live in the rural rural areas, we both grew up in rural areas. And so we've been here for about 26 years or so. And um, having watched that change in landscape has been challenging. So when we moved here, we were literally surrounded by um, family farms of all sizes. And uh, over the years, of course, that has changed and um, the farm fields are no longer there, but there are now businesses and homes and and developments. And um, we have um, expanded roadways uh, in the northern part of the county now. And so, um, you know, that give and take between development of uh, communities and the loss of our uh, farmland has been challenging to see. Uh, and, you know, also the, the um, keeping up with, with the growth is also a challenge. So even though we are in within Polk County, so the most uh, uh, populated and most urban county in the state, we still have challenges with broadband. We still have challenges with um with um, sometimes our electricity will go out. Um, And so those utilities aren't quite equitably distributed across the county, regardless if you're in West Des Moines or if you're in a rural part of the corner of the county. And so I think um, keeping up with with, uh, changes in technology, keeping up with the changes with the transportation infrastructure And of course, when small communities change and uh, new families or new businesses come into a community that has 
remained, um, you know, pretty much um, the same for years, change is hard. And you do see that sometimes um, uh, with, with perhaps people leaving an area because it's no longer the area that they thought it was going to be. Being from a rural area or living in a rural area is a strong part of identity for many people. I think living the rural life is almost a badge of honor. You know you can make it when you can live rurally in the upper Midwest. You know, what's interesting is, is, is growing up in a rural area and then having to travel into a metropolitan area for work um, come the winter months or when you have bad roads it literally is sometimes impossible to go anywhere. And, you know, comparing those experiences to people who live in town in which, you know, they might live on a main uh, byway and they have plows that come by much more readily and they can get to work easier. You know, that, that is a reality of living the rural life. We don't actually live on a farm here. Uh, my husband and his family have a farm up in Northeast Iowa. There's an assumption that often gets made that we live on a farm. We have just 12 acres here um, that uh, uh, we built our home on 26 years ago. And uh, there, there's a lot of assumptions that get made about living in the country. We are active gardeners. Uh, we do have a reconstructed uh, prairie on our property. We have uh, really transformed the landscape here with uh, doing a stream bank restoration project a couple of years ago. Um, we've, we think we've kind of repaired some of the um, problems that were on this land when we bought it. Um, there was um, some flooding, there was erosion, um, and not a lot of uh, uh, vegetation on the land either. And so over 26 years, we've, we've really um, changed literally the landscape here and it's been quite enjoyable to be able to see the seasonal changes that are happening. Like right now, I still have maple trees outside my window that are still bright red, um, which is fun to see. The Tallgrass Prairie Restoration Project uh, has been um, a 20-year learning process for us both. And it's been fascinating to see the evolution in tall grass prairie over that time. Sometimes it looks different week to week. Sometimes it looks different month to month and there's definitely differences year to year. Um, and learning how to manage and maintain that kind of diverse landscape has also been um, a wonderful learning experience for us both as well. You know, I, I, I just think that uh, unless you have lived in a rural community, um, grown up in a rural community, you have a much greater appreciation for what um, a rural community really has to offer. Andy and her husband have lived in rural central Iowa for more than 20 years. I asked what kinds of activities there are and how those opportunities have changed over the years. Immediately uh, within our community, we have, uh, you know, apple orchards and, and pumpkin patches, and uh, we have um, some small, a, a small farm store uh, just a couple miles away. And those are relatively new over the years. And so I think, you know, having access to those types of experiences uh, really adds to the, the culture of a community. 
Um, and it's really fun to see, especially young kids who grew up in town in the city to come out and experience that. And so that's, I think, one of the biggest advantages of living in a, in a rural community is that we can offer that sense of community and culture um, to, to others who, who don't live in a rural area. Perhaps Northeast Polk County is unique because of its geographic location, literally right in between Des Moines and Ames. And so the access to arts and culture in the state is, you know, we have lots and lots and lots of opportunities there. You know, this year being, of course, a very unique year in which that access has been limited. But the interesting thing is how innovative and creative folks have been to still make sure that they can deliver on, on their services and their products, even though their um, offices or um, their, their locations are not open to the public right now because of the pandemic. And so, um, you know, this is a very unique part of the state, that, that corridor between Des Moines and Ames. And um, I just anticipate that over the years, it will just continue to grow and flourish and offer even more opportunities. I was curious how being from Iowa helped Angie in her time at USDA. I think the advantage that I had going into that post at USDA was my knowledge of agriculture here in Iowa. And so having worked with um, the Leopold Center for Sustainable Agriculture, having a a degree from Iowa State University, um, living in a rural area in which, you know, my land and my husband's family's land um, is, is enrolled in, in programs such as CRP. Having that type of knowledge, I think, helped me in creating stronger relationships across the different agencies at USDA. It definitely gave me a much broader perspective of the types of services that USDA provides. And I hope it helped build uh, stronger relationships uh, between core agriculture programs as well as nutrition programs. Pastor Lisa Crow is our next guest. She serves First United Methodist Church in Marengo, a small town in East Central Iowa. She starts by telling us a little bit about her town. It is the county seat. It has all of those resources right there. Um, people drive to Marengo to renew their driver's license, to you know, do any official business, um, update your license plates, things like that. Um, but also our hospital there is, I think, unique uh, in that it serves a great purpose in our community and beyond our community. Uh, you know, I think that it's unique in the people that live there. Um, a lot of people that live there were born and raised there. Uh, not a lot of people are uh, transient, um, meaning, you know, are in the process of something else in their life. They, if they move there, they usually stay. Um, so I think that that is a, a bonus in a way. Um, but, you know, of course, also uh, being an outsider, it's always, I wonder how they'll accept me. Um, but my experience has been that uh, people are just so loving and generous there. So I think it's, it's a great community to live in and it's definitely a great community to serve. 
Lisa says being in a close-knit community is one of the biggest strengths of being in a small town. I think having lived in some bigger cities, you know, Cedar Falls, Waterloo, Coralville, one of the biggest strengths of living in a small town is knowing your neighbors and being able to easily build community. And, you know, part of that is done at the church, within church community, but uh, part of it is just, you know, even at the grocery store, right? Knowing people's names and being able to just stop and have a conversation with someone wherever you are, um, that's not something that you generally experience in a larger community. It's nice. Um, It's easy to find someone who will speak up on your behalf, right? Um, so when, when you write down your references, um, most of the time I might know the reference and just be able to pick up the phone and say, hey, what do you think? And, um, but I think most of the time we kind of already have a sense of whether they're a good fit for that position or not. So I think that's a benefit. I think also, um, you know, reputation is a big deal in small towns. And so uh, people are, maybe a little more careful about um, how they live their public life uh, because, you know, they don't want their reputation to be um, marred, uh, where in a bigger city, you're maybe a little more incognito when you're in public, but when you're in a small community and people know who you are, uh, it just, I guess it just makes good living a little bit easier. Community building is so essential to our well-being. I'm feeling like you're a part of something uh, is astronomical, right? Like we all have that need to be a part of something. And it's so much easier to be a part of something when you're in a smaller community. Marengo specifically has a lot of opportunities. Um, There's (laughs) non-COVID. There are a lot of um, things throughout the year, um, just activities going on um, where people can, you know, choose to come and usually they're family oriented. So um, centered around uh, kids and uh, sometimes the ministerial alliance is a part of that. And sometimes it's just, you know, the downtown Uh, businesses put things together and um, sometimes they're at the church and sometimes they aren't and um, there's just a lot of ways to really uh, dive into community there. There are great examples of church alliances in larger communities, but Lisa's comments about churches relying heavily on one another in smaller communities is important and points to other comments about community cohesion and connection. I definitely think it is different. Um, So, you know, what I notice is for me, particularly, um, we are kind of the place where people go when they don't know what to do. Um, And so I have done a lot of funerals since I've been there, but only one or two of those funerals have been for my own church folks. So we do a lot of community outreach um, and, you know, we have like the Marengo Ministerial Alliance, which is, um, you know, a group of local pastors there in Marengo and, um, you know, uh, surrounding churches that aren't in town that, you know, we do a lot of things together to help the community. 
And that's not really something that you see in larger communities. Churches generally do their own thing and they don't most of the time band together um, to make things happen. But uh, I think it's really lovely to be able to work, you know, with our neighboring pastors who are of a different denomination um, to do things in the community. Um, But also, you know, just having our doors open to everyone and people knowing that they're welcome there, whether or not they step in the door or not. Um, This has been a a very unusual time for the church, as you might imagine. Uh, We have not been worshiping in person for a couple of months. Um, You know, we were together in person for about six weeks in the summertime and we, we weren't in person before that. So it, this pandemic has caused all church leaders to really pivot and learn technology and things that I didn't ever want to know. We're picking up people who aren't available on Sunday mornings, right? Because once it's there, it's there and they can watch it anytime they want. So, you know, if they're available on Tuesday, but they're not on Sunday, they can go to church on Tuesday or whatever day it works for them. Lisa has talked about how easy it is to know one another and for collaboration in small communities. I asked her what her relationship is like with the public health department. I have met with them a couple of times. Um, Once we invited them to come for our ministerial alliance just to uh, kind of enlighten us on what happens uh, with healthcare and in our community, what our needs are um, so that the church can try and fill some of that void and, you know, mental health has been a real struggle. And before the pandemic, even mental health was a topic of concern for us. Um, And so just trying to find ways that the church can fill the void of, you know, what isn't available anymore and what is necessary for our community to thrive. Um, So, you know, we met with them, that was pre-pandemic, also met with them again, uh, because we were uh, launching um, a youth center in Marengo, and so um, just kind of, you know, trying to uh, pick their brains on what we needed for that, how they could partner with us in that endeavor. Um, And so we actually uh, did get that youth center launched uh, and then uh, was, you know, then the pandemic. We're going to switch gears a bit now and talk with Mary Swander again. We've already heard from Mary a couple of times in this series. She's a former poet laureate of Iowa and is really passionate about arts in rural areas. She sets up the next part of our episode really nicely as we dig into cultural identities and the arts. There is a wealth of talent, activity, people who want to do the arts in the rural areas, really, because Jean Logston has a book called Agriculture is the Mother of All Arts, and all the folk arts evolved from agriculture. And so that is all here today from, um, you know, quilting to woodworking, folk music, it just goes on and on. And, um, you know, that there you have this foundation that people can work from. And then, you know, it's a very um, ignored, again, this richness that's here is, is often ignored. Like I think of Alan Lomax a lot who went around and recorded all the 
I mean, he was an amazing archivist and musician, and he recorded all the folk music from everything from like prison songs, work songs, to um, old um, English ballads and the Appalachian Mountains, you know, to cowboy songs. And it's out there to be had and enjoyed. And then there are a lot of artists actually in the rural areas. And I established a nonprofit called Ag Arts. And I have a little office now in downtown Kelowna. And the conversation I was having with fellow rural artists is why don't more artists come to the rural areas? It, because, you know, for basic issue is cost. And when people, people, you know, like, oh, you opened an office, not in Iowa City. I'm like, no, not in Iowa City. Where, Cedar Rapids then? I'm like, no, Kelowna. Kelowna. And I said, yeah, well, I could open an office in Iowa City and it would be at least 15 times more expensive for the space that I have. And so rural areas offer, you know, the price is right. And I, 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 I did a little bit of work in Wakan, Iowa, and I was really trying to um, help them get some arts initiatives going. And I said, well, you know, if I brought in visual artists, I'd need space for studio, like they come with stuff, with paints and easels and, you know, it's not just like a writer who needs to plug in a computer, you know, and <laughs> and these economic development people, they looked at me and they go, Mary, we have space. Have you walked downtown, you know, and they have a lot of boarded up, you know, huge buildings. So, you know, I think we should do in Iowa what Paducah, Kentucky did, which is try to revitalize rural areas, small towns who have these empty spaces with the arts. And, you know, I think it would bring a lot of interest, tourism, diversity uh, to our rural landscapes and also opportunity. I mean, I have two people working for me now. And, you know, my friend Monica Leo does Oil and Spigo Puppet Troop in West Liberty. She, she was actually the one that gave me the idea I don't know. She has three or four people that work for her. And so every time she has a puppet show over there, people come to town, they buy stuff, they eat lunch, they, you know, they spend money. So there's, you know, something that people don't always think about how arts are economic development in a small space. And then um, I give a plug for ag arts. We are, we do residencies for artists who to stay on farms um, for two weeks to two months. And then it's not just like a residency where you hole up and write beautiful poems. And the artists have been doing that. They go to farms and they interact with the farmers, get to know what their issues are, get to know um, them, and then reflect that material in their art. And so that's been working out really well. I've been bringing them in from all over the world. That stopped because of the pandemic, but we're bringing them in from all over um, the United States. I had dancers from um, New York City here this summer. Um, I've had writers. I had um, Irish musicians from Ireland. I've had a painter from Maine. You know, it's been very uh, different and um I had a writer here from Chicago today and he wants to do one. The farmers like it too, because 
you know, they're, <laughs> they're out harvesting the vegetables and um, this Irish accordion is playing in the background. And they're like, this is just great. It's really funny because right now I've got more farms and farmers who want residencies than I have money, but donations are starting to come in because I pay the farmers a little bit and then I try to pay the artists transportation to get them there. And they put, they put in special requests. They're like, I really love Calypso music. Can you get me a Calypso? I'm like, yeah, you guys, this is really specialized. I'm like, all right. <laughs> I actually know a Calypso musician. So um, it's really funny what they come up with. I'm like, oh, okay, that's, that's cool. The arts can learn a lot from farming too, instead of us just like being an ornament for them. We're now going to hear from Tom Johnson and Ming Merkins. Tom was born in South Dakota and his family moved to Western Iowa when he was a young child. Meg is from Ohio and tells us why and how she came to Iowa in February, many years ago. Tom and Meg have worked in theater for years and are great storytellers, so I'm just going to let them talk. So I was brought up in that, in the rural world uh, until I went off to college, actually. And um, one of the things that makes me want to stay here and did while I was actively pursuing, pursuing my career was I knew what kids, especially in small towns, are missing, uh, particularly in the arts uh, and particularly specifically in theater. I didn't realize until I was a freshman in college that some of these things existed uh, because I'd never been exposed to them. So I kind of made it my career to um, take theater on tour. I've done that for 50 years. Um, take theater on tour to these small rural communities because I know what I was missing and I don't want to see any little kids miss that same thing. And actually, the reason that I am here is that I found out about this little theater company that was just starting up, small professional theater in, in Iowa. Um, I have to be honest, I wasn't exactly sure where Iowa was when I came out here. And I graduated from Kenyon College in Gambier, Ohio, which is a small town in itself. And after I graduated, one of my professors wrote me a note and said, I heard about this theater, it's out in Iowa and they're looking for actors to come out and I think it's a good fit. And I sent a pictured resume, but I didn't get hired at the time. And so I didn't know what to do. So I went to New York City and studied acting when I got a call from Iowa saying, it was February, 1976 saying, would you come out and tour a show? And, um, I said, uh, when do you want me there? Because I'll, you know, I hopped a plane and, and flew out. I wasn't, I wasn't enjoying big city life. However, I wasn't quite prepared for how rural Garrison is or Iowa when I got off the plane and Tom was driving me out to Garrison from the Cedar Rapids airport. And I remember it was in the evening and I looked around and I said, where are the houses? I don't see any <laughs> houses. And uh, you know, well, we'll get there. And, uh, and he picked me up in a bread truck, by the way, that was kind of a truck that the theater had. So I was sitting in a living room chair in a bread truck without, I mean, seatbelt. I wasn't even in a regular seat. And we drove out to this little town and I saw this theater that was starting up and it took a while before I realized how special this was. Um, it was it was wonderful, but it was remote. 
and it, it did take some adjusting. It was just so quiet uh, was the biggest thing. There weren't sirens and people <laughs> screaming in the streets. So, um, but I got to meet a lot of the people and of course the actors. The mission statement of this particular theater is to go to all these small towns across Iowa and bring live theater. And it was stunning. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine a better audience than these young people who hadn't really been exposed to a lot of the arts before. And so it's what made me want to stay. And that's why I'm still here. In our first year in, in 1971, um, we did 180 performances within the state of Iowa. And we got to the point that as time went on, and this was 50 years ago, by the way, um, as time went on, we routinely did five months, I would say five days a week, two or three shows a day, gymnasiums, backyards, anytime we could find someplace. All what we thought was in a, an affordable rate of, of fee for, for these rural schools. And that was really distinctly our mission. And for the most part, I would say that at that point, the shows were geared for K through five, K through six. However, we came to many towns where the, it might be a, a first through eighth grade school and the teachers wanted so badly for those seventh and eighth graders to have this experience. We'd oftentimes go into the classroom and ask them to look at the show in a different way and to be audience members as uh, models, you know, for the, for the mentors, for the younger students that were going to be watching this. But in fact, those seventh and eighth graders had never seen anything like this either. And um, it was a really a, a pioneer effort to take the arts out and, and it was such a, a wonderful experience for me to have the chance to be part of such a thing and see what the arts do in a very firsthand way to see the response from those kids that sat at those performances. I think it made a, a very uh, interesting point of view or perspective of small towns in terms of education. I can remember playing in schools that only had like 80 kids in the entire, perhaps a, a, a parochial school, for example, mm -hmm. and there would be high school kids at our shows. And we had to go to them and, and say, pretend that you're only 10 years old <laughs> when you watch the show. So the, you know, they wouldn't throw pennies at us or something. But uh, the but what it's seen, what it's caused me to see, at least with, after all that touring, is the, the death of the small schools, the consolidation, uh, the identity in a small town being based on the school, the school activity. You'll see, you go all over Iowa these days, I still do do a lot of traveling, and, and you'll see an abandoned school building that's been turned into an antique shop or something. Uh, and, and it's sad because they have lost a very specific uh, focal point for the, the pride in their community because the schools are gone. I'm sure that's true coast to coast, but it's very true in Iowa. And another uh, something that I hadn't really thought about till now, uh, we did these school performances, but we also, it was offered to the community, say we went in and did their school in the afternoon. And then we offered it to the community that evening so that um, so perhaps the high school students, the theater organization club would want to come and see it or the parents. And it was so wonderful to see the kids that had seen the show that afternoon, for the most part, all come back with Bring their parents 
And then you had this huge turnout for the, the evening performance, was, which was literally, in, in many cases, the same show. Sometimes we added material to it to make it a little bit longer, but it was, um, we were not only doing the schools, but we were also performing in the communities themselves. Uh, I remember Tom oftentimes would go in as what was called an artist in schools, I think. And he spent, artist in, yeah, yeah, and artist in residence. Artist in residence. Mm -hmm. And he would spend a whole week at a particular school working with every single grade at that school. So you can talk about that because I never did that. Put it in the academic perspective as well. We played every school in the uh, Cedar Rapids public school system and we charged a quarter per kid <laughs> that was in up all the way probably until 1980. And um, the... Uh, and if a kid couldn't afford the quarter, we let him in free. So we were, and we, that's why, by the way, we had a bread truck and, uh, <laughs> and no, no second front seat, but we did have a school bus we toured in and yes. some of our vehicles got better over the years. But anyway, the, the economics of the arts uh, as provided for the school uh, is, is just dreadfully underfunded. And um, I'm not sure that, I mean, that's, that's a reality, not a political point of view. And um, the um, uh, kid has an opportunity to maybe be in band or uh, some kind of, but it's mostly sports, sports oriented, what, I, what my observation is. And so what was missing there were opportunities in the arts. And that, that's really what has made me tick all these years. And it's really heartening to see how many theater, small theater companies have have been created since 1971. Really, the old Creamery was it, kind of as far as a touring theater company. But um, now it's, uh, in, especially in the corridor here, we have um, a plethora of wonderful small theater companies. And that's that's been terrific to see. Whether um, anyone's touring as much as we did back then, I, I, I'm not aware of. I, I hope that some of the smaller communities mm -hmm are able to have the arts in, um, you know, available to them right now. We haven't been with the old Creamery for, since 2007. So I know they've toured out except for this year, which of course is understandable. For a few years, Meg and Tom hosted a swap meet, bringing together musicians, artists, community members. I practically begged them to bring it back because it sounds like so much fun and I want to go. The last couple of uh, weeks of the second year, we were doing 100 to 150 people yes. uh, in, in the audience. It, it outgrew us. And it was just, and everybody, sort of like the, the little red hen, uh, everybody wanted to help us eat the bread, but nobody wanted to help cook it. <laughs> you know, sort of, it was like, oh God, I would get up on Monday, order the beer, start cooking the beans, uh, getting the meat lined up, da 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 da. And then Friday night, we do the, do the event. We would take a breath on Saturday, and then again Monday we would start clean, clean up on Sunday. Yeah, oh start Monday, but it was it was worth it. It was a that was a very unique experience that came directly from doing theater. I believe it was kind of put like putting on a show every Friday night. It was free to come in. It was free to the vendors to set up. It, they got to keep everything. We didn't ask percentages. We really wanted. Uh, a chance to um, bring a community together. Mm -hmm. And even though the Amana Colonies is a community in itself of seven villages, South Amana 
was a village where there's maybe 80, there may be 80 people that live in lower South and in upper South, maybe another 40 or something like that. That's loosely what I've understood. And I did not know everybody in our village. Um, I hadn't had a chance to meet them because where, where do you do that? Um, you don't go door to door and just say, hey, you know, what's your name? You know, but you come to a SWAT meet where there's a meal and you sit down and there are not enough chairs. You have to go join a table with people you don't know, mm -hmm. but you know they're from the area. Suddenly we have these groups that are coming. A meeting there. That are meeting there. Um, because, and they've just met, perhaps, you know, they're maybe from surrounding towns, but they've met some people here and at the swap meet. And then they have tables, they come over and they want to sit at the table together, they become a group, we had people who had perfect attendance for two years. <laughs> we had groups that we called with with his posse because it would be just this one gentleman and all his women. And the mean age of the people around that table were like 75. Yeah. So we had bluegrass people, we had some rock and roll people, depending on what, what we had on a given night. And they all worked for way, I used to say way less than scale, which was like dirt cheap. And so it wasn't just what we did. It was the sacrifice that those musicians, and if you add them all up, probably about 20 or more yes. um, individual mu musicians who came, you, you and, and Mark and others that we all know, uh, it, it, that was really uh, a sweet a thing. I, I write that one of the highlights. If it hadn't been so damn much work uh, <laughs> cooking those beans <laughs> and frying them burgers, boy, I'm telling you, it would have. <laughs> but again, and the music was really good. Mm -hmm. So quality. the quality was really high. Mm -hmm. So we would have all these people coming for the food, but mostly for the entertainment and for the music. And then the the little you know when the little sideshows that would happen the perhaps the auction at intermission and that became kind of a fun bazaar event in itself. Let's not fail to mention my baked beans. Your your baked beans were bringing them in from outside the county, yeah, yeah. Tom. But uh, if we hadn't had the arts, I mean, if it had simply been food and vendorware that wasn't necessarily arts oriented, it would have been fine. But the, the concert feel of it, and it was outdoors, and it was unusual, and people felt like they were in on a secret. Sometimes people didn't tell other people because they didn't want it to get much bigger. They liked it just exactly the way it was, but word got out. And to watch it grow again was really fun and really frightening at the same time because people start bringing their own lawn chairs, and it spread from just under the one tree to just expanding out into the entire parking lot area. So um, it was a joy. I'm so glad we did it. I'm, every once in a while, I'm very tempted to have a, a one-time only Friday night event where we, we bring it back or maybe just a couple times, but then I think about the food. <laughs> maybe we can't feed them all, but we should do these concerts again. It brought people together and it was a community spirit. Tom explains how rural America has changed as infrastructure improved connecting small towns. One thing, uh, when we talk about small communities in Iowa, um, there were all kinds of laws that said you had to have a hard surface road from a, a community that at least it connected with another. So there wasn't, because way back in my time, there were towns that were connected only with gravel or dirt roads. But that became a state law that there had to be hard surface road. And then when interstates and the big four lane highways and Highway 20 and Highway 30 and all these other things happened, um, 
rural America changed because getting from Garrison to Cedar Rapids in four, was 45 minutes, where it might have been two hours in the day of Worst Road. So all these uh, small community, the people in these small communities had an opportunity to go to the urban area or to uh, a place for a grocery store, a doctor, a nurse, uh, uh, these sorts of things. Um, you started seeing that there were no doctors in small communities anymore. You had to, you had to drive to get there. Uh, so they said that um, a, a big four-lane highway runs both directions. It takes people out of the small community, gives them an opportunity, but it also takes them out of the community. They're not, and, and the businesses began to get uh, not as successful. Uh, medical services don't get to be as successful, uh, and and we all live in that now in that whole that whole world. And- there, that's interesting too, because what I, I especially love about living out in a rural area is that I can, within 18 minutes, get to a city, um, a, a Cedar Rapids or an Iowa City, which has everything that I need or want, pretty much. Um, if I, you know, so I'm not out so far that uh, I, I'm just what I consider minutes away. It takes. In a, in a big city, it takes you longer than that to get across town. <laughs> so I can just zip up to the city, get whatever I need, but then I get to come down back to the beauty of the rural area and, and enjoy the living out here. And it, it really is pretty. I I don't think I ever take it for granted because I did grow up in a big city and there, you know, it just didn't, I wasn't raised like this. And so when I got here, it was such, it was so stunningly pretty and serene compared to what I knew. Now, a lot of people come out and find that they don't like that, you know, that they want to go back to the big city. But for many of us, we find this is actually a, a better way to, to live. A lot of the work Meg and Tom have done is to travel to schools to do theater for students. We've had many principals and, and teachers tell us in the schools our kids have never seen a live performance except for the junior club, and they're usually terrible. In other words, we've never had an opportunity to see a professional group of professional actors. Um, so we, we took it upon ourselves to do two things at once. One was to entertain them and then turn them into audience members, let them understand the, the, uh, the protocol and the, the kind of um, etiquette of being an audience member. Uh, we, we applaud at the end or we stand up or when you do these certain kinds of things. You, you, so it, it informs, it, to use your term, it informs our, uh, our art to establish and fit it to uh, these people without giving them strictly the limited menu or diet that they, they want, but expand their taste. I always kind of um, uh, compared that to going into some foreign... Uh, very uh, primitive society, and you don't dare um, offend their gods or, or offend their, their 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 rituals or their tastes, while teaching them that there are other other things that you know you you really were dealing in a lot of cases in some of these small towns with a very narrow 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 view of what art was, and in my case growing up in that sort of thing. I had no, I had no idea that people could get paid to do that. Uh, I, we had a band concert on Wednesday night in the summertime and that was about all I ever, uh, I ever saw. There was band, there was uh, choir practice, but, but to have that, that expansion. So that 
it, we had to understand without offending our audience. We had to understand that they they had somewhat primitive tastes, uh, and without being judgmental. And but going forward from that, hopefully at the end of a period of time, they'll have a taste for something else. And I know this kind of uh, Megan. I talk about this frequently. We'll go someplace, and they'll say, "Oh, you you were with the old Creamy Theater?" Yes. I remember, and the, first of all, there'll be a big guy there with gray hair and his like teenage kids with him. And he said, yeah, I saw you when I was in the third grade. <laughs> that, and I still remember that. No, no, you can't. You can't. You're too old to have been in my, well, 50 years, let's face it. There is an interesting thing, too, that happened when we lived in Garrison and had the theater there before we were sharing um, stages with Amana. When we were just in Garrison, I think part of the reason that a theater in Garrison worked is that it was such an anomaly. I mean, here we have, a, a, it was a farming community and suddenly the hippies descend on, on the town. In 1971, they yes, were called, they called were, us they hippies. Were the hippies. And, um, and want to do this, this art thing. And uh, Tom could probably talk to that. It, it was pretty interesting. I was not there at the time, but I've heard the stories and it's, it's amazing. But when I got there, a lot of times we had ushers, uh, even our house manager, I think was 11, 12, 13 years old. Um, and we had ushers that were kids that were eight, nine and 10, and they were told how to usher and they were very professional about it. Now you- um, And they worked for free. And they did, but they, they, were, they got to see the show for free. So they, they would trade out. Some of those kids, if they liked the show, they'd usher every single night in the summertime. And uh, it, they were, fantastic and we you know they were part of the the kids in the community it was fun we'd chat with them and and get to know them i'm on facebook with a whole bunch of them now these kids that that ushered some of them have gone on to become um music teachers um one has gone on to teach theater um I, a lot of them are in the arts in some way and i look back on that and i think that that would never have happened if that theater hadn't landed in that particular town, that the influence of that on the younger, especially the younger generation was um, even more than I think we realized at the time. Um, there's a, a quote I remember about small, small communities. Uh, one bad thing about living in a small community is everybody knows your business. What's the good side? Well, the good side is everybody knows your business. And meaning that he, there's a certain kind of care, a certain sort of uh, Loyalty. look after. I, I mean, I know when I was a kid, you know, on Halloween night, if I was in trouble, uh, it would get home to my mother before I did because somebody would call and say, <laughs> you know, what, your daughter, your son's doing it. Uh, so, but there, 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 there was a care in that small community. Um, we mentioned moving to Garrison and um, we were not welcome. Uh, there's no way you could say we, we were welcomed by the community as a whole, the individuals that like us. But uh, you knew that you were in, when I got, I was the producing director of the company and I got invited at the end of the second year to join the fire department. Now that was the biggest honor you could have be bestowed upon you yeah. was to be on the fire department. Um, and I even was uh, appointed to the town council and even won the election the next year, the next term, got 11 votes. 
never forget the only, the only political office I've ever held. <laughs> only time I've ever won a vote. So when? Um, but uh, not to put down the, the it, it really was a whole different sort of um, feeling in the community um, that because it was small and everybody knew each other. And again, you don't move into a foreign sort of situation like that and, and pretend you're better. No. Um, we, uh, and joining the police or the fire department or, or, or going to the socials or Meg has been a member of the Lions Club in Garrison still is, and she commutes to back to Garrison to go to, <laughs> and you're at what, your 30 year pin? Oh, yeah, it's coming up. 30 years of being in, the, in a service organization. You become a part of the community. Yeah. It's, I always consider it my birth home in Iowa, and then Amana has become, you know, my next home. So um, I feel very at home in both places and very welcome. And so, of course, I want to do what I can back for the community. Um, I think just, you know, people are always excited about the arts. They don't necessarily understand what it entails. And so to sit down at a Garrison Lions meeting and they ask you about what your work day is like, it can be pretty stunning for them to hear what kind of work you do all day. We don't just memorize lines really quickly and pop it up, you know, and on stage, they, they don't understand. We do it in three weeks time, put that show up and what happens in that three weeks time. It was really fun to share that with them. On the other hand, I learned more about um, why tilling, you know, disc, disking was important uh, at a certain time of year and um, what, you know, GMO and, you know, I learned a lot about agriculture because it wasn't just about me being, oh, I'm in the theater. Let's talk just about what I do. And when I go there, I want to hear what they do. And so it was as important for me to find out what it was like to um, go out to a farm and see little pigs being born or... <laughs> <laughs> or uh, whatever else I, I wanted, you know, to, to open up to. When we went out on tour, we stayed in what we called host homes. And I always asked if I stayed on a farm, if I could get up with them and, do, and just go along with the chores. I, you know, obviously I didn't know how to do it, but I could watch. And uh, they, they were always stunned by that. And, and um, God, why? I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. I have no idea what you do in the mornings. I will so say of great. all the actors, of all the actors who toured with us, you were the only person that offered help with chores. <laughs> yeah, maybe more not. But and, um, they could always tell when I got on the bus after that I had helped with chores. So uh, back back to Meg's uh, <laughs> reference that we were called hippies when we went there. They were afraid we were going to come in and, and uh, turn their kids into drug addicts or something. I, I don't know exactly. We were all college people, college professors, uh, advanced students, da 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 da, and. Um, we had a regimen. We went to work in the morning, the afternoon, and the evening. We took Mondays off, just like any theater company. And uh, there was a, a series of articles in the paper about those hippies over in Garrison in, in letters to the editor. So one night, we were sitting in a little local watering hole, uh, the only little watering hole, the, the kitchen post. And uh, this man came up to us and he said, you know, he said, they've been sitting in the paper that you guys are hippies, but you ain't hippies. He said, I see you. You go by my house every day. At 10 o'clock, you go down and you go to work and you come back at one o'clock and then you go back at two and you work in the afternoon and then you come home for supper and then you go back and you work from seven to 10 in the evening. He said, why don't you go to work earlier in the morning and you wouldn't have to work in the evening? <laughs> Meaning he didn't realize that 
we hadn't been doing shows yet at night, I guess. I, I don't think he'd ever been to a, a yeah. play, but, but but we weren't hippies. But but you worked, and then and there was also there was some uh, I don't know some letters that went back and forth in the newspapers about those hippies in Garrison, and somebody wrote back from Garrison and said, well, they may be hippie hippies, but there are hippies, yeah. and we like them, you know, <laughs> and so it became this kind of you know, protection of my, our hippies. Mm -hmm. And, but the, the deal was, is that they saw that the arts were a business. You work X amount of, you know, you work six days a week. Um, and that was something to, oh, it was eye-opening and it was something to admire. I mean, they worked seven days a week, many of them. So they that, wouldn't, they wouldn't rent houses to us when we first went to town. Uh, it was difficult to find housing for everybody. And, uh, after about a year and a half, after we did manage to get, and they saw that we paid our bills, every time a house came open, they would call Tom Johnson. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've got a place. Do you have any one of your actors who want to live there? That's right. Yeah. So it did change. But that's because we learned so much about each other because of the location and mm -hmm. because um, we were working um, in a community and becoming part of the community. Um, not everybody thought that you know, certainly so, but um, for the most part, if you do your job and, and you work with your neighbors, you are a local and you're mm. part of the community. We've now spent quite a bit of time talking about the arts. So I asked our guests why they think the arts are important enough to have dedicated their lives to sharing theater and the arts broadly. When it comes to funding the arts, practically every European country is much more, uh, focused on funding the arts for their their citizens no matter where they live in that country um when i first started uh the company in 1971 we had a small grant four thousand five hundred dollars from the iowa state arts council and then as time went along we were funded by corporations we would one time we got something from the joyce foundation that was amounted to ninety thousand dollars over three years and we lived on that i mean that's funded our and then we had the national endowment for the arts and that um, uh, was another uh, a big source of funding for us for a good number of those of those years. But in the meantime, the National Endowment for the Arts is no more. I mean, it's still kind of a skeletal organization and it only funds large things like the Lincoln Center and stuff like that. Corporations don't pay money or don't give donations like they used to because there's no tax advantage. And if they do fund rural, they, they fund things like health or uh, welfare kinds of uh, the good of the basic living of people, but the arts are not on their list of fund, funding. The State Arts Council is skeletal. Um, schools, uh, it's more difficult to get them to bring in for, uh, theater companies or any companies uh, uh, to uh, not only entertain, but teach the kids. Um, so the arts have begun not to matter they've become in priority, they become sort of way down here. And if you don't have art, human beings are the, the only species, that's the correct word, uh, that does art for art's sake, that, that, that creates for, it's, that creates art and music, acting, painting, all the arts. And if we don't have that, we don't have humanity. And that's my reason for thinking that knowing that arts are important to everybody. I think 
two, the the arts open up your mind to new ways of thinking. Uh, you uh, there's there in so many different ways. You you might start to think of something in a whole new light after seeing or hearing or however you are experiencing the arts, it may open up a part of your brain that wouldn't wouldn't happen with anything else. And so I love to see the, the light go off in, in a child's eyes when they see something that is just brand new to them. And so I, I just think there is no other way to get that to people um, except in the creating of human experiences and, um, and then using that to convey feelings and and um, experiences that that someone might not have unless you, you you were presenting them with something artistic. It just gets your brain to work in a different way. And you see, we would go into schools and do some interactive arts with some of the kids. Some of the kids that would put their hands up right away to be part of that, you could see the teacher flinch and just think, oh no, here we go. And this, this student would get up and do the most amazing uh, piece of work, you know, just, just a, a little improv uh, acting out something. And, and, it, and it, you know, it was amazing to see this kid come up with something that was so unique and new. And the other kids are looking at this, this fellow student with, um, you know, just wonder because they've never seen anything like that from this, this kid. And then afterwards, this teacher would come up and go, oh, I just thought that was going to be a disaster, but I've never, ever seen that particular child um, capable of doing what he or she just did in, in the classroom here. That just, that made me look at that child in a whole new way. Mm -hmm. And that was because of the arts. That was because of getting something to that kid that nobody else had been able to do. One of the um, exercises I did in just in very brief detail was, is how many of you are creative? And about three kids would raise their hand. You're not creative? Uh, everybody's creative. No, they're not. And it's, well, how can you be creative? What ways? Oh, uh, you can paint, but I'm not a painter. Or I'm, And I did this series of exercises. And I guarantee by the end of that 20-minute little exercise, I had every kid there thinking that they had a way they could express their creativity. And that I, was, I, I count that as a big success yes. in the number of times I did that because it gave it gives the kid, the, the, like she says, an awareness that, uh, I might not be able to paint or draw or something else, but there's some way I can express myself creatively. And that's what makes us human. That's what makes us unique. What an interesting group of guests we had today. Thank you all for joining us. And thank you for creating, supporting, and enjoying art in your communities. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Share Public Health. Thank you to the Injury Prevention Research Center, Iowa Center for Agricultural Safety and Health, the Healthier Workforce Center of the Midwest, the Heartland Center for Occupational Health and Safety, the Great Plains Center for Agricultural Health, the Midwestern Public Health Training Center, the Prevention Research Center for Rural Health, and the Rural Policy Research Institute. The theme song for this series is Walk Along John. It's performed by Al Murphy on fiddle, Mark Jansen on mandolin, Brandy Jansen on banjo, Warren Hanlon on guitar, and Aletta Murphy on bass. 
Al learned these songs from a fiddler named Delbert Spray, who is from Cahoka, Missouri. A transcript, evaluation, and discussion guide for this episode are available at mphtc.org and in the podcast notes. Thank you.